Well, wasn't that divine? Thanks, worship team. You guys are all awesome, and it's really, really comforting to stand up the back and listen to that this morning. Um, g'day, if you don't know me, my name's Kane. A couple of faces I haven't had a chat to today, but if you want to say g'day at the end, please feel free. Um, I'm one of the elders here at Kingsway, and um, there's a team of us that meet regularly to, to pray over the church and support our leaders in um, the way forward of God's vision. Um, it's my blessing this morning to be able to share uh, the book of Mark with you. Um, I'll start by um, <coughs> letting everyone get prepared. If you need to look on the screen, is it on the screen this week? It, it will be on the screen. Um, Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 16, finishing at about verse 39. <coughs> and the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one to his right and one to his left. And those who passed by deride him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see him, we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, you, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And, some of the, uh, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in his way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. My name is Simon. I'm a Jewish man from the city of Cyrene. It's a beautiful city on the coast of North Africa, the Mediterranean Sea lapping at our back doorstep. They call my city the Athens of Africa, for we are people from many places, from across the, the deserts below us and from the seas above us. And from all over, we are made up of Greeks. There are Hellenists among us. There are Romans. There are refugees, people like me who had fled the war and who had fled the unrest. We are a good people with good families. Though our Jewish tradition did not afford us any privilege or any status in our newfound homeland. We're a minority people. We're foreigners pushed 
to the margins and edges of the city, people just to be tolerated. I had longed for so long for the chance for my family to make the trip to Jerusalem, to share in the Passover, in the heartland of our faith, for in Cyrene, our worship of the one true God was not so welcome. And many weeks before the Passover festival began, my sons Rufus and Alexander and I, we set out on a journey, not knowing what lay ahead, but a journey that would change us forever. We set out with our belongings on our backs and we headed east, knowing that our journey of some 1,500 kilometers would bring us much trial and tribulation. We had to keep ourselves focused on the joy of taking Passover in Jerusalem. You know, Egypt, as we crossed, was a place of incredible extremes. We crossed over into the border, into the land that our ancestors were held captive. We ourselves, like them, though, could not wait to shake the dust off our feet. As we passed through that rugged land, we knew that our story went beyond the land of Egypt, that our story did not end in captivity, for that is the reason why we were going to Jerusalem, to celebrate that God had set us free. You can only imagine the, the heat of the day and the cold chill by night, and the dusty and unforgiving terrain. As we crossed the deserts of Egypt, we knew that Yahweh, that God was with us. As we neared Jerusalem, our, our spirits began to lift with anticipation. We were so close. Our hopes rising like the tide. Oh, to worship with our people. What a blessing this will be. And as we drew nearer to the city gates, we saw a commotion up ahead. And as we neared, I inquired of a local man, what is all of this noise about? Have you not heard, he said? The man who calls himself the Christ has been charged with death by the people of this city. They say he'll be crucified here today. So curious, I, I shouldered my way into the swelling crowd. I had to see this man named Jesus that we'd heard of back in Cyrene. I must see him if this is he. And as we got closer, the, the noise grew in intensity. I heard cries of injustice reverberating off the cobblestone pathways and laneways. Voices of condemnation barreling down the streets. Crucify him. Crucify him. The crowd were all yelling. At that moment, my mind paused. My curiosity turned into confusion. If, if this man is who they say he is, if, if, if whom at the center of all of this commotion is the man Jesus and they want him dead, I must see him. I mean, news had spread about Jesus for over a thousand kilometers back to us of all that he had done, miracles upon miracles, feeding of thousands of people, evil spirits submitting to him, teaching and power like nobody had ever heard or seen before, families and farmers and fishermen turning from the gods of their mythology, following the one true king. And then I, I saw him, a broken figure of a man surrounded by a vicious Roman guard. I could see that this was not the beginning of this man's journey. The shreds of flesh torn from him, the blood dripping from his brow, all evidence that this had been a very 
long day, a brutal day for him. And with the full weight of a Roman cross upon his shoulders, he staggered down the road, a man beaten beyond recognition. He no longer bore the image of a man, but more like the likeness of a beast being led to slaughter. Yet among the ravaging hatred, there were those among the crowd who called him Lord. And my mind wrestled with the weight of this moment as my senses absorbed the stench of such brutality. And then for voice from among the soldiers cried, You! Come here! Silence fell across the crowd as they wondered of whom is this man referring and again, you come. And with bewilderment and panic, I realized this man was referring to me. I said, sir, you must be mistaken. Yet before I could complete my statement, the hand of the soldiers seized upon my tunic and they threw me to the ground. As I regained my posture and I looked at this man, Jesus, a man beaten and battered about dead on the ground. Pick up his cross, the soldier commanded me. I had no time to hesitate. As I carried and labored under the weight of the blood-soaked cross of the Christ, I felt for a moment his agony and his pain. And I asked myself the question, why me? I am but a Jewish man headed for Passover tea. I was not prepared to carry the guilt and shame of a cross and see this man, Jesus, nailed to a tree. And stumbling forward, both Jesus and I inched our way painstakingly up the hill. The soldiers pointing toward Golgotha, yelling at us both, Go! At that moment, I caught the eye of a man not yet defeated, broken and battered, bleeding and hated, though for a moment. I saw in his eye a look of love, a love for which this man would die. As I carried his cross, it dawned on me. At the center of Jesus' suffering was me. The weight of the cross suddenly faded as I felt the weight of the pain that he carried for me. You see, our people thought that taking Passover deemed us free. It wasn't until I took up his cross that I found true freedom in me. And then only moments later, he was strung up upon the tree. I'd never met a man so kind, so knowing, so loving, so driven, all that I would be forgiven. And now I stand a new man, facing a new destiny, one free of guilt and shame and religion. My life, my family, all of it changed for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that the stories of your word are so incredible. Father, thank you that even just in the smallest of moments and glimpses that you give us in your word, that there is so much for you to speak to us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that through Simon, the man from Cyrene this morning, that we would see the beautiful truth of your word to us, that we'd be encouraged this morning because of who you are and what you've done for us. Father, that we would be worshipping your name this morning and nothing else on this earth, no other person, no other thing, but just King Jesus, the one who gave everything for us in your precious name. Amen. Well, the storyline of... I'm Dave again. Sorry, I'm not Simon anymore. The storyline of Simon from Cyrene and his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, is one but of many stories, storylines that interact and intersect um, with the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. And we don't get a huge amount of information on Simon the Cyrene, 
But what we do get through the course of Scripture uh, holds some beautiful truth for us that I want us to pull out today. I mean, the fact that Simon the Cyrene was named um, when at so many intervals in the Gospels that people go unnamed is a beginning point that there is something for us to pay attention to in this man's story. And not just he was named, but also Simon's two sons were named, Alexander and Rufus. And it's also the case that when we see a genealogy in Scripture, albeit as small as this one, a man and his two sons, that genealogies also give us an indication that there is something more far-reaching than what first meets the eye. And so a little bit of background on Simon. Simon and his sons lived in the foreign country of Cyrene, which was 900 miles in the old measure, or the Yankee measure, and around 1,500 kilometres from Jerusalem, situated on the northern coast um, of Africa. They say about where Libya is, or Benghazi, um, to the, if we're looking at the map, to the left of Egypt, kind of in the middle um, of Libya. Um, Simon was a Jewish man who during the diaspora had fled with his family from the war and the unrest um, and with a whole cohort of Jewish people they went and formed a community in Cyrene. They estimate maybe 25% of the uh, city of Cyrene was a Jewish community of those who had gone to resettle. Clearly devout to the God of the Jews, Simon wanted desperately to make the pilgrimage from Cyrene to Jerusalem, perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, something that wasn't done on the regular, particularly with the distances and logistics required for them to get there. This was something that um, Simon was desperately longing for. Some say that he would have walked it. A lot of people say he would have walked it, which should you take that journey today? I, I put it into Google Maps, um, Benghazi to Jerusalem, and Google Maps shows a 402-hour walk. Um, quite some distance, a long way. Some people say that he would have sailed, um, being a port city and hopped off somewhere and walked the rest. Either way, it's a long journey uh, with two teenage boys in tow. Um, Mike tells us that Simon was a passerby. This is some of the only information that Mark actually gives us. He was a passerby, and in doing so, it's safe to assume that he was making a beeline from where he was straight towards the temple so he could take part in all of the Passover festivities. And on approach to the city, um, it perhaps came to a, as a surprise to him. Um, he would have thought that the, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who were all heading to Jerusalem would have been entering into the city, but what Simon was met with was a, a commotion and an entourage, a, a swelling crowd exiting the city and not going into it. And perplexed, no doubt, by the swarm of this um, heightened activity that appeared to be surrounding the crowd, Simon drew a little closer. He wanted to get a look at all of the commotion, perhaps I don't know if you're one of these rubberneckers when you see a car accident, you're like a little bit kind of, I'll slow down, have a look. That might just be me, full honest confession right there. Love a bit of rubbernecking. Or perhaps this was just the road that Simon was going down to get to Jerusalem and he had to pass this crowd. We're not quite sure. Either way, things, as we know, escalate really quite quickly for Simon. You know, as Simon worked his way through the crowd, he got close enough to see that at the center of attention was a man, covered in blood and beaten, and had been, uh, had done so all day long, all night, as he'd faced the trials that he faced. And he was carrying a cross, not just carrying it, but this man was uh, physically so tired and exhausted that he could no longer carry his own cross. And the Roman guard, noticing that he was unable to complete the journey, it was given his state and given the weight of the cross. They yelled out to Simon. And they asked him to carry, they compelled him to carry his cross. I mean, no doubt that he could clearly see Jesus' state and the injuries that had been inflicted on him. And no doubt the horror of this scene would have been both shockingly confronting and scary and confusing for Simon. 
I mean, imagine if that was you for a moment, that that was the scene that you entered into, thinking that you were on your way to celebrate a, a momentous occasion in your faith tradition. And on the way, this is what you find. This is the scene that you find yourself in. I mean, is this really Jesus? I'd be asking that question. I mean, it, 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 this is not the picture of the man that we've heard of. You know, news has spread all the way of this man who is teaching in power and with authority, but yet here he is in this state, sentenced to death. Is this even him? I, mean, I wonder what he did to deserve this. If it is him, I wonder what he did or what he said. How did he upset people to that degree? Why are so many people invested in his death and his demise? I'll be asking all of these. But Simon, before he could make sense of any of these wonderings, one of the guards yells out to him, hey you. I'm sure Simon did the, what, who me thing? Like you're talking to me or is it somebody else? And sure enough, it was Simon. They've picked him out, singled him out. And so Simon stepped forward and he, from the crowd and he approached Jesus and getting close enough to hear the, the whimper in his voice and the groans of pain that he exhaled, exhaled with each breath. You know, he lowered his shoulder below the cross that Jesus was carrying. And you know, for a moment, I'm, I can imagine Simon coming alongside Jesus close enough to, to touch him and, and, and perhaps to, to have shared in that, that painful moment and together for just the briefest moment, they bear this burden together. And perhaps it was in that moment that a, a look or a glare was exchanged and Maybe something happened in Simon in this moment of encounter with Jesus. In fact, it did. And I can see Simon catching the eyes of Jesus through the blood and the sweat and the tears, seeing not a criminal, but a loving saviour. And for the next mile, Simon carried this burden, laboring under the weight of the cross and the heaviness of the moment wondering as he walked, as perhaps all of us would if we put ourselves in his shoes. How did I end up here? Why me? Uh, will, I, will I still make the Passover meal? What happens from here? I mean, as he's laboring under the weight, just the, the musings of his mind would have been on fire. And with the little detail we get of what was going through Simon's mind, it's hard to really know what he was thinking. However, if we put ourselves in his shoes for a moment, maybe we can use our imaginations and the context that we do have to uncover some truth from this vantage point of the crucifixion of Jesus. And I have three observations of this encounter that I want to leave us with this morning. Uh, and my hope that it would also inspire some storytelling um, as we take communion um, at the end of the service this morning as well. And the first thing I notice in Simon's story is that God is at work in the background of our lives. I have no doubt in my mind that at some stage as Jesus, as Simon carried Jesus' cross, the thought tracked his mind is, how did I end up here? Why I mean, have you ever found yourself asking that question, how on earth did I end up here? Maybe it's been, how did I end up in this job? How did I end up in this church? How did I end up sitting at this table? How did I end up friends with these people? How did I end up in this meeting? How did I end up in this mess? Why me? When I do it all the time, how did I end up nearly 40 years old? How did I end up married for 17 years? How do I end up still married after 17 years? How did I end up being responsible for four little humans and making sure that they stay alive every day? How did I end up pastoring a church? How did I end, how, I have these moments of existential bewilderment all of the time. God, why me? Every now and again, it just happens. We think about it. 
And I think through all of my fears and failures and all my dumb decisions and the times I've fallen asleep at the wheel of life and I wonder, why me? God, why are you using me? God, why have you chosen me? God, how did I end up here? And no doubt this was the case for Simon. Like so many stories in Scripture, this is a story of the power of God at work in the background of somebody's life. It's a story that highlights the truth that Jesus speaks of in John 5, 17, where he says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. I read the work of a man named Howard Eddington this week, and he put it like this, The hidden hands of God are always at work in our lives interweaving circumstances, orchestrating events in order to produce some divinely desired result in our lives. We tend to forget that the forces of heaven are always at work directing things in our lives. We tend to forget that the Holy Spirit is watching over us 24 hours a day. We tend to forget that the hidden hands of God are holding us and the eternal arms of Christ are around us supporting us. We tend to forget that there is one who made us, who loves us, and who loves us so much that he is guiding, directing, arranging, and controlling things in our lives. As the proverb puts it, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And as human beings, we will never stop making plans, but perhaps a lesson for us in Simon's journey is that we need to hold our plans lightly. You know, I wonder if in hindsight, Simon was able to look back over his journey. Up until the point that he was in with Jesus carrying the cross. And maybe if not then, but maybe in the quiet hours afterwards, he was able to look back and join the dots and see all the moments along the journey from his hometown to Jerusalem. Maybe he would have been able to see the moments of delay where they got held up for whatever reason, and gone, actually, maybe I am, maybe I was there to carry that cross for a reason, and maybe that delay was God at work there. Or maybe he had moments where there was a seemingly really peaceful and easy part of their journey where it just felt like the wind was at their backs and the, you know, there were three sheets to the breeze sailing towards Jerusalem, feeling like there was a grace and an ease upon the journey. And perhaps Simon could have joined the dots and been able to go, man, God gave us grace at that time in our journey so we could be here right now. Now I wonder if Simon had have taken a moment to think about that 1,500 kilometers and gone, man, I can see how God was at work to get me to this place here realizing that it was in fact the careful work of God the hidden hands of God guiding and leading him to that very moment where Jesus needed somebody to carry his cross now I wonder if we were to take a moment right now and to look back over your life I wonder where that you might be able to see the sovereign and the providential hand of God in your journey how has God directed your life both in your decisions and where he's miraculously been at work in the background, bending space and time that you, he would use you for his kingdom mission? To stop and go, you know what, that season of life or that event or that moment or that thing that happened, I didn't understand it now, but as I look back, Man, maybe I am here right now because of what God was doing then. In the hidden hands of God at work in our lives is a spectacular and reassuring truth that we must never take for granted. For as Paul says in Philippians 2, it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Now we sing it quite often that even we, when we don't see it, He's working. And there's some assumption in this, but I think it's probably a safe one to make. That in Simon's journey from Cyrene to Jerusalem, that God was in the background of his life, orchestrating things, moving things, moving in power in ways that he could not see, just to get Simon to that place. 
He's at work in the background of your life. I mean, take heart. Maybe you feel like you're on that journey from Cyrene to Jerusalem and maybe you're facing the desert and all of the monsters in the desert that wanna take you out and take you down. Maybe it feels like the terrain you're journeying right now is slowing you down. Maybe it feels like there is delays. Maybe it feels like the conditions aren't conducive to the way forward. But know that down the road, God has a plan for you to be where you need to be. Perhaps you're where you are now and you can recognize it. Perhaps you need reassurance to know this morning that God is at work in the background of your life. The second observation from Simon's story is that God is at work in the interruptions of your life. And who he loves it when your plans get thwarted. You know, you set out in the morning with a clear idea of what's going to happen and you just thrive on those plans um, being entirely stuffed up. Who just loves that? Thought, thought as much. I mean, Simon being asked to carry Jesus' cross was a significant interruption to his day. A significant interruption to his deep passion and desire to get to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. I mean, in his mind, he likely had the journey pretty well mapped out, knowing he had his boys with him. It wasn't a haphazard, we're gonna book these things on the fly. There would have been some intentionality, setting out, knowing this is kind of where we need to be at about this time, and you know, being a bit planned and a bit organized as they went along their journey. No doubt he scrolled the hashtags of uh, Instagram to look for the best food. I once learned a lesson from my dear friend, Chris, if you're gonna go somewhere you haven't been, you just go hashtag on Instagram and then write the word eats afterwards. So like, I, I bet he did like Jerusalem eats and I did it this morning actually. Um, I'm supposed to be doing message prep, but here I am on uh, Instagram going Jerusalem eats and by golly goodness, the, the food in Jerusalem just looks um, absolutely wonderful. Um, but no doubt he'd had all these plans that were in place and off and away he went. But his, chance, his plans changed in an instant. The minute that that Roman guard singled him out to carry Jesus' cross changed his day in a way that he was not going to be able to fathom. And with this would have come all manner of thoughts and emotions as he walked. I mean, alongside the horror of seeing Jesus so beaten and the immensity of the physicality of the task of carrying the cross, Simon would have been dealing with the surprise and the shock of being singled out of a crowd. I mean, just imagine that for a moment. I mean, you know what it's like when you're at church and, you know, some bozo like me up the front says, hey, come up here. And you're like, ugh. Man, that would have been a, a real feeling for Simon, feeling called out of a crowd, singled out, picked on, embarrassed, I assume he would have felt, being picked out and being the focus of attention. We don't like that. I mean, the annoyance with this unplanned detour. I mean, we know what it's like to have our plans royally stuffed up. It annoys us. I know it annoys me. The reluctance that he would have felt to be associated with a man who was a criminal in the eyes of the Roman occupiers and the Jewish religious leaders bearing this device of death and, and being so close to Jesus would have deemed him unclean. Simon would have at that moment, from that moment on, been unacceptable in the temple to be able to go and worship. Was he in this moment just feeling like this trip has been an entire waste of time? I can imagine Simon feeling extraordinarily vulnerable, very lonely, very disgruntled, angry, annoyed, unworthy, confused, exhausted and perhaps you're facing an interruption in life now maybe this year hasn't panned out like you thought it would maybe where you thought you would be at this point is not in fact where you are Maybe there have been interruptions in your work maybe there have been interruptions in your family maybe there have been interruptions in your health Maybe there have been interruptions in your finances, whatever the case might be. Here is a beautiful truth that I see in Simon's interruption that I want to be reminded on of when things go awry. 
See, Simon's plan was to go to the temple to meet with God. He expected that he would meet with God in the format, as in Passover, and within the formula being the temple of how God was to be experienced. Little did he expect, though, that he would encounter God bloodied and beaten, carrying a cross to the place where he would die. See, Simon's plan was to go and meet God in the expected way, but God's plan was to come and meet Simon in the most unexpected way. And this is deeply reassuring for us, that in the middle of life's unexpected interruptions, God is not found in the formulas of tradition, but rather he comes to us on the road that we are walking and he meets us. He meets us revealing the true nature of his kingship. He comes as one who has given his all for us. He is the one who has suffered for us. He is the one who has gone to the most extraordinary lengths in giving his life that he would find us. He comes as the one who has suffered for us. He comes as one who is not so prideful that he needs just to push through and carry his own cross. But man, the beauty of this image of Jesus being so humble, being in fully nature man and fully nature God, could have just pulled the I'm the God lever and this thing became as light as a feather. But yet we see the humility of Christ as he allowed a stranger to minister to him. God used this deep, sorry, this interruption to bring deep revelation. I mean, this was an enormous interruption, but so too what Simon received from Jesus in this moment. Life-changing revelation. And there are gonna be moments in your future if they aren't there right now where your plans are interrupted, where you thought things would play out. And in fact, um, they've played out entirely differently. There'll be moments where like Simon, you feel like you are out of your depth. There'll be moments where you feel like you are very vulnerable, feeling like you are alone, feeling perhaps like you are embarrassed, like you don't belong, like you are angry, like you are frustrated, like you are uncertain, like you are scared. And it's at times religiosity will shame you, but the truth we see in God's word is that God will come and find you in the place of your biggest interruptions in life. God wants to meet you with new revelation and fresh revelation of who he is as king in your life. And so rather than perhaps blaming ourselves because I know that's what I would tend to do when you know, life gets interrupted. Oh, Dave, you shouldn't have. Or why did you do that? Or why didn't you say that? Or if only you had have done things differently. Or, you know, I can easily go to a place of self-blame. Well, then the next best thing would be to blame somebody else. Well, the reason this interruption is here is because they did this and they did that. And, and then, of course, it goes on when I realize that I can't blame others for sometimes, often, my choices. I'll go to God. God, why didn't? And God, where are? And I can start blaming God. But maybe we ought to be asking God, what are you showing me here? What are you revealing to me in this interruption about who you are? What truth do you want me to see here? What is it that only this thing can teach me? But if I didn't go through this, I wouldn't know. God, where are you at work in this interruption? And things, that things haven't gone to plan is not evidence of the absence of God, but perhaps it is the invitation of God to find him anew. Lastly, God is at work now for the future. And we can see this in a really amazing way in Simon's story. See, what we do know is that experience was not just a transactional one where Simon simply did what he was asked to do and leave completely unchanged. This, as it turns out, was a wildly transformational moment for Simon. And not just for him, 
but for his whole family. In Romans 16, Paul is rattling off a a whole list of personal greetings to people who have ministered to him and who have ministered alongside him, people who have been with him through thick and thin. He mentions and commends those who have had a significant impact on his life, Prissa and Aquila, Phoebe, Mary, Epionatus, Andronicus, Junia, Ampliatus, Urbanus. Maybe we just need to add an US to the end of all of our names to be really the people of God. Davidus, you could call me that. Uh, Micus, Jessus, let's get close to Jesus. Uh, Mingus. And Paul says in his greetings or in his commendations, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. There is wide agreement among New Testament theologues that this Rufus and his mother are none other than the wife and the son of Simon the Cyrene. Pretty amazing. I mean, it's said of Simon that as he carried the cross of Christ and followed him to his death, he indeed was the first Christian, the first one to embody the true call of discipleship, the first one, as Jesus himself said, if anyone is going to believe in me, must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And there can be no doubt that at this moment, this interruption, this unforeseen circumstance, this encounter with the suffering servant, this spirit-ordained meeting with the divine, it was far more than a man rendering assistance to Jesus in his time of need. It was a moment where a human heart was transformed by the sacrificial love of God. And perhaps as Simon carried Jesus' cross, there was more said than what the Bible gives us. And I like to think that the silence of Scripture in this moment invites us to use our imagination. I imagine that as both men walked and stumbled along the road, in the, in the brief moments between their labored breaths, that Jesus was speaking loving truth to the very heart of Simon as they walked. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But he would go there and he would speak to the quiet place of his heart and remind him the very reason why Jesus was going through this horrendous time so that Simon would know the Lord. Now the holy ground of suffering is often where Jesus reveals the greatest truth to us, truth that will transform us and those around us. And so Simon went on, as people do in the scriptures, and they can't help but speak and share what they've heard. And we also hear at Pentecost in action, Acts, Actions. It should, be, it should be called the Book of Actions, I think. Acts, it is packed full of actions. In Acts 2.10, when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit fell upon the people, that there present were a group of people from the city of Cyrene. Now, I don't want to make the Bible twist and bend like an Olympic gymnast to prove a point, but I can't help but I just picture the faces of Simon and his wife and Rufus and Alexander, their two boys, that moment when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Their arms are lifted high and they're in deep prayer and they're in adoration of the risen King Jesus. I can't help but imagine that these four, this family together, this family who had been transformed by an encounter with Jesus, I can't help but imagine what that had done for their family unit, that what Simon experienced on the road with Jesus moved into his family, into his home, not just into his home, but they were so captivated by what God had done in their lives that they fell in love with the Jesus community. And there they are worshiping together. And as the Holy Spirit falls and they start praying in their Cyrenian native tongue, 
the other people in the, in the room who didn't understand Cyrenian started hearing them pray in their own language and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this family and the church. You know, if it be true that indeed Rufus and the Cyrenians mentioned by Paul and Luke were in fact the family from Cyrene, it must be true that not only is God in such passionate pursuit of individuals, but he is also so passionate about the power of his gospel changing families, changing communities, changing cities, changing nations, shaping churches, changing generations, bending time and space, that both the immediate and the eternal future would see the coming of God's kingdom in greater fullness. See, the work of God in our lives is both end. It is both for us and it is for others and it is for him. Now, there is no way that Simon could have predicted where his journey would take him when he took the first step out of his home in Cyrene. Yet I have no doubt that God could see him and his family standing there on the day of Pentecost, worshipping his name as the church was born. I take great courage knowing that when I take my very next step out of the doors this afternoon, that all that I can see is that next step. I have total confidence that God can see my future, that he, says, he sees where he wants me and he is orchestrating things in my life, in the background of my life, and I don't know how, but he's doing it. My faith is in a God who is at work in the background of my life, his hidden hands weaving and orchestrating. My faith is in a God who sees the interruptions that are ahead and who is preparing himself to meet me in the midst of them, despite how confronting they may be. My faith is in a God who calls me to the cruciform life, to take up the cross and to follow him. And my faith is in a God who is building the future now, even when it doesn't feel like it. When it feels like our world, our nation is taking a step backwards, I must have faith in a God who is moving his kingdom forwards. Who is sowing seeds in my life and in your life that they would grow and bear kingdom fruit that my family, that my kids and that this church, God is shaping and he is transforming. That we would be changed by the power of the gospel. We're going to stand and we're going to take communion together. And uh, I'll get the band to come back up as well. As I think about these moments in Simon's life, I, th I think about them in the scale of what God was doing through Jesus' death and resurrection. That the cross was not just a mistake, but a carefully planned act of redemption for humankind. That as much as it pained the Father, it wasn't plan B, it was his plan A for saving the world, that he would give himself, that Jesus would surrender his life to the will of the Father. That was not a momentary decision, but the working of God from the beginning of time, that he would be known, that God has been at work in the background. We open the Bible and we are opening a, a, a precious text that has an arc of God's activity right the way through it that keeps pointing to Jesus and pointing back to Jesus and pointing to Jesus and pointing back to Jesus. That in every story, every miracle, every act, every page, Jesus is at work through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring humanity back to himself. We know that Jesus' death and resurrection was the greatest interruption that the world has ever known. That such sacrificial love would usurp the powers that be and show us another way to live, another way to interact, another way to be a part of community. And we also know that in the work of Jesus, it's not just a work of 2,000 years ago, and it's not just a work of now, but it is a work for the future. That God is foreseeing a future where His kingdom is coming. That Jesus is returning. That there is the good news and the hope that we have a kingdom that does not perish and does not fade. God is at work in the background. He's at work in the interruptions. He's at work now for the future. And so as we take communion this morning, I want you to do so um, having courage put into you this morning in that regard. 
that God is working. And as Jen prayed for Israel and Palestine, and God is working. We have to have faith that He is. We don't know how and we don't see it yet. In the same way, whatever you're walking through right now, God is working. Take heart, friends. Take heart that He sees the step you took from your home and He sees where you are now and He is moving in the midst of it all. So come, take communion with a grateful heart this morning. And maybe share with somebody a story. If you want to do that or you want to sit and take communion with someone, please um, do so. Otherwise, take a moment to be thankful that God is at work in your life, that He holds you and that He loves you and that He has a plan for you and for His church. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You that You are here. Thank you, Father, that you are at work in my life and that you're at work in every person's life here. Father, in the seen and the unseen, in the moments of ease and grace and also in the the seasons of hardship and suffering, you are at work. And Father, I pray that we would place our faith in you this morning, not in our ability to make sense of things, but in your power to act and in your power to move. So Father, I pray that if there are things in our lives that need shifting, need changing, need your transformational power, I ask as we take communion this morning that the power of your death and your resurrection would be alive in our hearts. That you would change those things right here and right now. Give us faith for that. Lord, pray in this moment of encounter with you that you would reveal to us deep revelation of your love and your goodness and your heart for us. Father, may we see in your eyes the love and the kindness, the compassion, the tenderness and the words that you have for us. That Jesus, meet with your church right now, as you have been and as you will be. Meet with us in this moment, in your name. So come, take communion, converse with a friend, share a story, uh, or take communion on your own and we'll finish with a song in a few minutes' time. Uh, Be blessed. And we'll wrap up in a minute.